just echo those who've already said Happy Father's Day. And I'll throw in a happy Juneteenth as well, right? Uh, one of the things that uh, is really nice for me as an immigrant to this country is that we all get to learn about Juneteenth together. Um, so it's, uh, I know for many people uh, it's been a regional uh, celebration and so uh, a lot of folks are still coming to terms with it. One of the things I, I find really interesting about uh, Juneteenth is obviously freedom is, is something that uh, as Christians we celebrate, right? Being, uh, spiritualizing it, we, we say we're free in Christ and that's a, a big part of our message. It's the good news, the gospel. And, uh, but the other part is Juneteenth, of course, is about, what, six months after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, came into effect. And it took that long for the good news to reach uh, Texas. And so I was thinking about this and how similar that is to our, our faith, right? Uh, we often talk about the already and the not yet. And so even though the uh, proclamation had been signed and it was in effect, it wasn't in effect everywhere. Not everybody knew about it. It took time. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, happens you know, with Jesus as well, right? I mean, the victory's won. That was our song that we just, just sang, right? The victory's won, but the message hasn't got everywhere. And so we live in this in-between. And in the meantime, there's still a lot of work to be done, right? Juneteenth wasn't the end of the work. It was just the beginning of more work uh, to, to live out the, the freedom and to implement the freedom uh, that was intended. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of a lot of overlap there for churches to say, yeah, I can, I can connect with that idea and the reason for that celebration. Well, today is not a um, Father's Day message nor a Juneteenth message. Uh, we're just continuing our sermon series, Walking by Faith, looking uh, particularly at uh, the Gospel of Matthew and uh, this, the account there of Jesus walking out on the lake to uh, his disciples who are in a, a boat there. I'm going to read that for you just so we are all on the same page. And if you've been here the previous two weeks then, or three weeks, then you'll, it'll be very familiar. But that's all right. By the last week, we're just going to have you recite it. Okay? So don't be complaining about how familiar it is. You know, you'll get your chance to just... Recite it back to me on the, in a couple of weeks' time. Okay, maybe not. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, the disciples, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be Lord, if it's you, said Peter, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind 
died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. <clears throat> this is a captivating story. Right? It, it's difficult for us to imagine because we've never seen people walk on water. And there's not a lot of explanation as to why the story is in the Bible. When I read it, I wish that Jesus would give some commentary at the end of it. it. Maybe he could get in the boat and he could say to the 11 disciples that are still there, uh, he could say, all right, guys, I hope you noticed how incredible Peter's faith was. He still has a ways to go, but he's in front of you boat potatoes by so much. And, and then we would read it and we'd say, oh yeah, this is a story that demonstrates how great Peter's faith is. What a wonderful thing. Or maybe he could have said something to them like, uh, I hope you all learned from Peter's failure, right? Uh, now remember, guys, don't start something you're not prepared to finish. Okay? Count the cost before you begin. And, and then we would read the story and we go, oh, this is a good story. And it teaches us to be prepared, to recognize that the path ahead of us has dangers and we need to persist through it. But we're not given any of that commentary by Jesus. And it's like, okay, Jesus, how do you evaluate this? What do you think is going on? What do you want us to learn and take away from this? Is Peter to be admired or to be criticized? And so I think that's something that we wrestle with as we read this story. Well, I land in the camp, and you don't have to, but I land in the camp that says we should admire Peter. He attempted something audacious. Um, the other 11, and, and, and I really love this, is, is that the other 11 didn't even consider whether they could walk on the water. Right? They just saw Jesus out there. They said, well, that Jesus, he's something special, isn't he? Right? And then they're in the boat and they're saying, I, I'm, I'm glad I'm not out there. This boat's keeping us safe here, you know, in this terrible storm. Maybe Jesus will help us row and get to the other side when he gets here. But Peter was the one that said, hey, Jesus is walking on the water. I wonder if I can do that too. He was the only one that had that thought that, that said, yeah, I think, I, I wonder if I can do that. If I can do what Jesus is doing. And, and I think that takes tremendous imagination and, and tremendous faith to say, hey, God wants us to do that. God, God is making that possible and we can participate with Him. But then... The other 11, even when Peter got out and was walking on the water, you know what they didn't say? Hey, Jesus, can I have a turn too? Can I come? Like, even once their imagination had been sparked, even once Peter had asked this question, even once he's walking on the water, they're still sitting in the boat watching him. Right? Can you imagine them nudging? 
You know, how far do you think he's going to get? <laughs> um, like, they weren't getting out of the boat just because Peter did and just because Jesus did. And so I think that their reluctance, their reticence, really emphasizes the faith that Peter demonstrates. Now, what happened next to Peter as he looks at the, the wind, as he starts to sink, I think is something that's very common in our life and maybe more common than we like to um, acknowledge. You see, what happens so often is that the reality, our life reality, doesn't meet our expectations. Okay? So often our expectations for things are higher than the reality. I don't know what Peter's expectations were for walking on the water. It probably happened so quickly that he really didn't have any expectations. But apparently, whatever he was thinking didn't include the wind. Because even though he's in a storm, even though he's aware of this wind, even though he's been rowing against it, he's doing fine walking toward Jesus. And I don't know if he walked 10 steps or if he walked 50 steps. Okay? We're not told how far he walked, are we? It could have been 100 steps toward Jesus. But at some point, he looks up and he sees the wind. Now, if you're in the middle of a lake, you can't see the wind in the trees. Okay? So when he says he sees the wind, he sees the waves. He sees the, how rough it is. And, and he is concerned uh, about them overwhelming him. Peter sees the wind. And he begins to sink. And isn't it amazing how quickly our positivity, our hopes, our plans and expectations can transform into fear, anger, and grief. Isn't it amazing how the lag between our highs and our lows can sometimes be like stepping off a cliff? Very rarely is it this long, slow descent. Have you ever celebrated receiving a job offer? Convinced that this is going to be the best job that you've ever had, everything's going to be really good, and then you get in there, and you're like, wow, what was I thinking? <laughs> right? The job looked good, but my boss is terrible. I can't believe I'm sitting next to that person. I'm... That wasn't what I signed up for. Can I go back and undo that celebration that I had? Right? My praise point from last Sunday has become a prayer point for the next Sunday. Have you ever gone on vacation and uh, something happens on the way? Something that, that you, know, you get to the beach. After looking forward all winter to finally going to the beach... You get to the beach, and the first day that you're there, you get totally sunburnt and roasted. And for the rest of the time, you're indoors, slathering yourself with lotion, trying to stay cool. Maybe your car breaks down, or the plane is delayed, and you get there a day late, and the week that you planned is suddenly six days, and it's all, all your plans are thrown out of, of order. 
how quickly what was going to be the best week for the year has suddenly turned into this week of chaos and disappointment. Can you picture a wedding? That magical day when everything is perfect. And then the newlyweds receive the bills for the wedding. And all of a sudden, everything's not so perfect, right? All of a sudden, there's stress, tension, maybe some arguing that's going along. And it's like, well, that didn't take very long. Life throws us curveballs, doesn't it? It may be walking on water. Well, probably not. But it's the same effect. And so how do we avoid despair when we encounter these um, challenges? I want to suggest two for us today. Two uh, principles, two actions that God gives us, that God demonstrates that help us avoid despair. And, And the two are presence and affirmation. Presence and affirmation. In Judges chapter 6, we have the story of Gideon. And uh, I'm not going to read very much there. I just really want to reference one verse. But life isn't going as expected for Gideon. Gideon is living in Israel during the period of the Judges. And the, the nation of Israel has been unfaithful to God. And so they are uh, being attacked by marauding bands of desert bandits. And, and the, the bandits wait until the crop has been harvested. And then they just swoop in and they take all the grain and all the food. And they say, thank you very much. Um, they don't, actually. They just take it. And so Gideon is actually, when we meet him, he is hiding. And, and he is threshing wheat, trying to to scrape together just a little bit of grain that he can hide from the bandits that he knows are coming. They've been coming for years, and so he knows what to expect. He doesn't know what day they're coming, but he is hiding and trying to do what he can. And then God sends an angel to Gideon. And the angel has this greeting for him. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Presence and affirmation. Right? Presence because God's, the the first thing that God says is, I'm with you. Okay? Gideon. I'm with you. And then the second thing he does is affirm who Gideon is. In fact, Gideon doesn't even know who he is at this point. But the angel says, you mighty warrior. I've got a new name for you. It's not secret scaredy cat threshing wheat in a cave hiding. It's mighty warrior. And so we see how how God enters Gideon's life and says presence and affirmation. 1 Kings chapter 19 provides another example of this principle. And I, I am going to read this section. I'm, I mentioned this several weeks ago, uh, and so I thought this week would, would come back and read it. And here we have the example of uh, Elijah. Elijah has just defeated the 
prophets of Baal and a showdown on top of a mountain. And, 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 and as they have called for fire from heaven to consume their sacrifices, they've danced, they've cut themselves, they've tried to get the attention of their gods all for nothing. And then Elijah simply prays to Yahweh. And fire comes from heaven and consumes not just his sacrifice, but also the prophets of Baal. And, and then after that happens, Elijah, at this pinnacle of his powers, right? That you could command fire from heaven. That, that you've won this decisive victory, proving that, you, uh, that, that God, your God, is the only true God. Stronger and more powerful than any other would-be God. And, and then Elijah looks around and he says, well, this was good, but Jezebel the queen's not going to like this. She's not going to be happy. I better run. And so he runs. And he runs. And he runs into the wilderness. And, and he just, he, he says, he just collapses there. And then God says, I want you to go further into the wilderness. And he says, I want you to go and find this cave. And he has this conversation with God in a cave. I'm starting in verse 9 of 1 Kings 19. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then the voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And God said, I heard you the first time. No, he doesn't. <coughs> then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Numshi, king of, over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. There's a lot in that passage. Elijah has seen God in the fire. Right? He's seen God in the fire on top of Mount Carmel as, as those prophets and as the sacrifice were destroyed, uh, were burned up. 
But now God says, you know I'm there. But in this demonstration, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not in that today. He said, today, I'm in the whisper. And I think the question he asks is significant. Twice, God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? And one of the reasons that it's significant is that God doesn't say, Elijah, what are you doing over there? He says, Elijah, what are you doing here in this cave with me? Because he's with Elijah. What are you doing here? And, and, and so we see that presence. Okay, Remember our two points for um, despair are presence and affirmation. And, and so presence is, is um, very much implied in his question. God is present in the silence. In the wilderness, in the darkness, in the cave. And as you hear it, it may seem like it's a a familiar cliche that you've got God, everything's going to be okay. But God doesn't tell Elijah the solution to his problem is to pray more. He doesn't tell Elijah the solution to his problem is to read the Bible more. He doesn't tell Elijah the solution to the problem is to sit in the cave in the silence in the darkness listening for a whisper more. God affirms Elijah. And I'm not saying they're bad things. They just weren't what Elijah needed at that time. God affirms Elijah by giving him something to do. He's to anoint a couple of kings. You notice the the first king that he's to anoint is actually in Aram. It's the uh, nation to the north of Israel. Okay, it's not a, a Jewish nation. It, it's to the north of, of Israel. In, in fact, uh, sometimes an ally, ally with, the normal, with the northern kingdom of Israel, but usually an enemy. God says, I want you to go and anoint a new king for the Arameans. And then he says, I want you to anoint a new king for Israel. Anoint Jehu, because Jezebel and Ahab are going uh, to be deposed. And then he says... I want you to anoint a new prophet. So basically, Elijah, I need you. You need to get busy. There's still work to be done. You still have value. And and notice that last one there is Elisha. That's going to be Elijah's replacement. But they're going to hang out together. And so God says, he's not just saying, hey, I'm enough for you. He says, no, I'm going to give you somebody to wander around the countryside with for the next few months or years. for, For you to mentor, to train, to teach. And then God says, and and more than that, you think you're the only person faithful to me in the whole country of Israel. He says, actually, there's 7,000 more. You're not alone. So God gives him presence, gives him affirmation. And I think this principle of these two things, whether it be uh, our roles as as Husbands, our roles as fathers or mothers, 
But the presence and affirmation becomes like this baseline in our relationship with those people, with people around us. And, and it can totally change the perception, the, the way we approach the disappointments in life. Because those disappointments now aren't defining who we are. Because we have people in our lives that are with us and who are affirming us. Back on the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 14, I don't know how Peter felt as he walked on the water, but I imagine he felt pretty good. Right? That's got to be a pretty good feeling. That Look! Right? You remember swimming for the first time, maybe without the floaties on your arms? You're like, look at me! I'm doing it! Imagine what walking is like. Right? And, uh, and so Peter's having a good time. Um, and then he looks at the wind and he begins to sink. But what we see is that Jesus is right there for him at this moment where he could have so much guilt piled on him, right? I can't believe that you messed up. Like, oh, this was going to be such a, a big moment. You know, um, and, and you, you're just a goofball, Peter. You couldn't even do this right. All you had to do was walk. Jesus is right there. He sticks out his hand and lifts Peter up. That's presence, isn't it? That, that when Peter sinks, Jesus is there. And, and then he asks, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You could say, you could hear Peter maybe thinking, hey, Jesus, where's the affirmation, right? I just walked on water. Well, I, I, want, us to, I want us to think that, that like with Elijah, what I think Jesus is saying here to Peter is, I believe in you. Right? Yes, Peter, you have some I wouldn't have said come if I didn't think that you could do it. And, and, and you acted on that. You acted on my invitation. And he says that you have little faith at the moment. Don't worry. There will be more opportunities for you to live out your faith. I think Peter, I, I think Jesus saw this as a step in the learning process. In, in the growing process for Peter and uh, encouraged him. He, he didn't you know, pile guilt on him. He encouraged him to have more faith, to build on it. You'll do better next time. And then I think of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his moment of isolation and despair the night before he's going to die, as he is praying to God, looking for a way out. Luke 22, verse 43. There, it's the only gospel that mentions this detail, but tells us that an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. I wonder how that angel strengthened him. Red Bull energy drink? Um, probably not. I think it was the angel was presence. Right? That all of a sudden, while the apostles were sleeping, while Jesus is over by himself, an angel appears to him and give, provides God's presence. And then it strengthens him. 
It, it affirms that he can do it. It says you can get through this, whatever lies ahead, whatever challenges are there. Firstly, you're not alone. But secondly, we can do this together. We can get through the cross. I'm with you. You can do it. I think those words have a lot more power than we uh, perhaps give them credit for. The very last words of Matthew's gospel again embody this principle as Jesus sends the apostles out into the world, as he sends us out into the world, as he gives us this mission to change the world through, uh, through the message of the good news. You remember what he says? He says, go and make disciples. I'm, I'm entrusting you with this responsibility. I'm leaving. You're carrying on. I believe you can do it. I'm going to give you the power you need. That's the affirmation. And then he closes out the gospel, the, the book of Matthew, by saying, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Presence. Presence and affirmation. I noticed even in our, our reading from Psalm 22 this morning, in verse, uh, beginning in verse 19, the psalmist there cries out, But you, Lord, do not be far from me. He's seeking God's presence. And then he says, You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Rescue me, in verse 21, rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Like, affirm that I have value to you. Rescue me. Save me. And so we see these two things going together so often throughout Scripture. And so here's what, how I think it applies to us. That when we have those highs that are followed by the lows, when life doesn't go as we expect it, when perhaps it's a, a, you know, a medical diagnosis, perhaps it's a career uh, misstep, perhaps it's... Um, school grades that don't turn out as we hoped, when, when, when a relationship that fails, when all of these things, when, when our hopes and expectations are up here and the reality is down here, then, then the message that God has for us is, I'm with you and I affirm your value. Don't despair. Together, we can get through whatever life throws at us. But that's not the end of the application. I think that's the, the first point, is that we need to be aware of God's presence in our lives. But it's not just God doesn't just have this one-on-one -on -one relationship with us. It's not just trust God and everything will be fine. God surrounds us with people. And He puts people in our lives that sometimes remind us, hey, you are precious to God. And God is with you. That mistake, that failure, that disappointment doesn't define you. And sometimes God puts people around us because we are that person to someone else. To speak into their lives and, and, and say, I don't have all the answers. You see, there's a lot more that could be said for how to overcome despair. But we don't start with giving all the answers. I believe we begin just as God greeted Gideon. We just say, I'm with you. You can do this. We can do this. God loves you. I'm here for you. And you can get through this with just 
a little bit of faith. I think those simple messages don't take a lot of conversation. Presence doesn't take any conversation. But I think that's where we can begin. We can transform people's lives. We can bring hope where there is despair. Because that's what God has done for us. We're going to move into communion at this point. And uh, I think, Jim, if you... We're going to have a recorded song when Jim taps it and uh, listen to it, sing along with it if you like, and we prepare our minds to come around the Lord's table.